0: Good evening. This is your host, Mr. Dark, bringing you a series of some of the most terrifying, strange, and true short horror stories of crimes, murders, abductions, and experiences. You're listening to the Dark Side Diaries podcast. The dream Slayer Victor Lakata. Victor Lakata was born in Tampa, Florida in 1912. Throughout his childhood he was described as generally shy and antisocial. Mental illness was common in the Lakata family, and Victor had his struggles with it. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was considered psychotic. Many speculated that he had inherited his insanity as his parents were first cousins. One of Victor's brothers was diagnosed with schizophrenia as well, and his uncle and two cousins had also been institutionalized for mental illness. On October 16, 1933, things would turn crazy for the 21-year-old Victor Licata. It was mid-afternoon, and neighbors began to notice that Victor's family wasn't out and about the neighborhood, as they were often seen coming and going. Victor's father ran two barbershops, which kept him a busy man, and not seeing him leave the home had neighbors suspicious. This was out of character for Victor's father. Some of the other neighbors had heard loud noises coming from the family home the night before. The following day led to a call to the police when they noticed nobody had left the home again. A horrific scene awaited officers when they arrived at the family home. Victor used an ax to murder his parents, two brothers, and sister while they were asleep with blows to the head with an ax. As police entered, they first noticed Michael Licata, Victor's father lying in a puddle of his own blood in his bedroom with signs of a struggle and his body wedged between the bed and the wall. In the adjacent bedroom, the bodies of Victor's 22-year-old sister Prudence and his 8-year-old brother Jose. As police went further in the home, in the rear bedroom they found the dead body of 44-year-old Rosalie, Victor's mother, and his 14-year-old brother Philip. Philip, still breathing and moving when police found him was rushed to the hospital where he died soon after. Police continued to search the home, looking for additional victims. In the back bathroom of the home, the police found Victor, and he was still alive, cowering in fear and talking to himself. Police immediately noticed he was wearing a clean white shirt and pants. However, underneath his clothing, Victor's skin was heavily stained with blood. Immediately charging Victor with murder, officers soon discovered just how insane he had become. Victor told police he had a dream where his father pulled him from his bed and held him against the wall. He said his mother stood there taunting him as his brother entered with a carving knife and also taunted him. They then sawed off his arms, replacing them with prosthetic wooden arms with iron claws on the ends. His siblings all stood in the room and laughed at him in the struggle. Police believed he had a nightmare where he woke up in a delirious state and murdered his family, which is how he got the nickname the Dream Slayer. A year earlier, police had tried to enforce a lunacy petition to lock him up. His parents begged to keep him at home, insisting they could give him better care than an institution could provide, which proved to be a terrible decision for the family. Licata was never prosecuted for murdering his family. 11 days after his arrest, psychiatrists deemed him mentally ill where he was overtly psychotic with a condition that was acute and chronic. He was committed to the Florida Hospital for the Insane in Chattahoochee, Florida in 1933. On October 15, 1945, Lakata and four other patients escaped. It would be years before Victor was recaptured when he visited a cousin in New Orleans who would turn him in. He was incarcerated at the Florida State Prison in Rayford, Florida. Few months later, on December 4th, 1950, Victor committed suicide by hanging himself. One of the most significant pieces to come out about this case was the Chief Detective W.D. Bush found several places Victor had purchased reefer. Bush claimed Victor had supposedly been addicted to smoking marijuana cigarettes for more than six months. Victor's case was used as one of the foremost prominent with trying to show a link between recreational drugs and crime. Specifically, that marijuana usage caused insanity and criminality. Harry Anslinger, who was commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics at the time, used this case for his 1930s anti drug campaign against marijuana that is still being fought today. the crew of the Sarah Joe. It was February 11, 1979, when five friends, Peter Hanchett, Benny Kalama, Ralph Malakani, Scott Mormon, and Patrick Wozner, took the day off to go on a fishing trip in their boat named the Sarah Joe. The vessel was 17 feet in length, had an 85 horsepower engine, and wasn't well equipped for any main sea voyages. The friends ranging from 26 to 38 years old of age, had years of boating knowledge and experience. They set off from the town of Hana on the Hawaiian island of Maui in the late morning with a calm and clear day. But within two hours, by 12 in the afternoon, the weather would take a turn for the worse. None of the five members had checked on the local conditions or weather reports and weren't aware of a major low pressure system that was approaching the islands. If the storm that hit the town was any indication, then the conditions for the five men at sea must have been horrendous. Even the most expert of sailors would have been in trouble. With gale force winds and torrential rain, the boat more than likely was tossed around like a rag doll. Numerous bigger fishing vessels would make it back to port and they would report that the wells peaked at a height of around 40 feet. But there was still no sign of the Sarah Jo for the five friends. Even though hope was dwindling, none of the locals or relatives of the missing men were willing to just sit tight and do nothing. They would do a search along the coastline, but the visibility was still poor and weather conditions didn't help to search further until the storm ended. On the following day after the disappearance, with better weather, the Coast Guard recommended the search for the Saragel. It developed into a huge fleet of ships, boats, together with aircraft, and the search covered 70,000 square miles of ocean. They even brought in homing pigeons, specially trained to locate people stranded at sea. The searchers faced major hurdles, with the boat being the same color as the water and nobody knowing what direction the group went. The search was officially suspended after five days with no sign of the Sarah or its crew. Experts concluded that they wrecked and sank with all hands on board. Family and friends of the missing men were not ready to abandon hopes, combining their resources and cash which would maintain a search for an additional three weeks. But the additional search brought in no new evidence of what happened to the five men. Time would pass and it seemed as if memories were all that were left of the missing men in the Sarajevo. Joe. But that would change on September 9th, 1988. The case of the Sarajevo took a bizarre turn when biologist John Naughton was on a wildlife expedition in the Marshall Islands, 2,000 miles west of Maui. He came across an abandoned fiberglass boat on the coastline while working at Tongi Island, With only part of the registration of the boat, it was just enough to ascertain that it came from somewhere in the Hawaiian Islands. Further investigation was carried out, and the mystery of what happened to the Sarah Joe had been solved. But with the discovery of the missing boat, it would raise even more questions, as there was nothing inside or around the boat itself. So what happened to the crew? With no signs of life, notes, or any kind of equipment that might provide clues, Naughton and his team decided that they would search the surrounding area. 60 yards from the wreckage, Naughton's team discovered a makeshift grave with a cross made from driftwood spotted sticking out of it. There was also a human jawbone protruding out of a pile of rocks. At the time, they couldn't verify the gravesite was connected to the Sarah Joe. The team also couldn't find any evidence that the island was inhabited. The gravesite would eventually be excavated and a partial human skeleton was uncovered. The skeletal remains were sent to a forensic lab and identified as Scott Mormon's remains. Another strange occurrence with the burial site was small pieces of paper were found in the grave in unbound stacks about three quarters of inches squared and alternated by slips of tinfoil material between the pages. These papers had been buried deliberately. Nobody knows who buried Mormon's remains, but one theory is that a Chinese fishing boat landed on the island. Chinese tradition includes small pieces of paper, or paper money separated by gold or silver foil, to be placed in a grave. These items are meant to represent fortune for the afterlife. Experts agree that the Sarah Joe could have drifted the 2,000 miles to the Marshall Islands. The voyage would have taken about three months, but no one knows for certain if that was the time frame, which just deepens the mystery of the Sarah Joe. This concludes our episode of the Dark Side Diaries. Please remember to follow, like, share, and subscribe for future episodes.